Hello, I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. Welcome to Healthcare Untold. Hey, Barbara, we're happy to join you today. Um, I'm Jasmine Nahira with Pajaro Valley Prevention and Student Assistance. I'd like to introduce uh, our co-hosts, um, actually, <laughs> our invitees, which I am part of, but I'm also co-hosting. So, Maria Elena, jump in. Erika, jump in. Go ahead, Maria Elena. Yeah, good morning, everyone. This is Maria Elena de la Garza. I'm the Executive Director to the Community Action Board of Santa Cruz County, and I have the honor and the privilege to work with Erika and Jasmine to move things forward in our community. Hola, everyone. My name is Erika Padilla-Chavez, and I'm the CEO of Second Harvest Food Bank of Santa Cruz County, the first food bank in the state of California, the second in the nation. Very proud to be of service in my role um, especially as a child when um, I depended on this site for support um, in my life. So it's it's beautiful to be in this role now. That's wonderful. And um, Barbara, what I wanted to just like remind our listeners is that about a year and a half ago, we did a round of interviews and we had highlighted Erika when she was still in the role of CEO for PVPSA. And we also um, highlighted Maria Elena and our amiga who's no longer with us, Laura Segura. And I just really want to name that for uh, me being grounded in this new position with these amazing mujeres, I really believe that Laura brought us together. And, um, and with that, we have her in our hearts as we do this work every day and which helps us stay grounded into our community needs. And so I just really wanted to say that. And um, I'm so impressed with this community and um, there's so much to always tell, but um, I'm happy that our listeners are here to kind of listen to, uh, you know, what's going on in our Pajara Valley, South County uh, in 2023. Right. Right. Thank you, Jasmine. And, you know, um, it's such a great honor for me to have all three of you. You're all three CEOs and it's hard to get three CEOs in a room. But let me just say you got like more than 20 of them in a room to respond to COVID and the most recent, uh, I think, just dramatic floods and impactful floods for the community of Watsonville are becoming such experts at responding, but you're doing this every day anyway. It becomes a little bit higher level of response because of the number of people all at once being impacted. Um, the story really began with, you know, that first week post-COVID uh, where we all thought it was just going to be a few days and then we were all going to get back to our office. And um it became apparent as the days um, uh, went by that we were going to be in this for the long haul. And it was intuition, really, and understanding that I was getting some information. Marielena was getting some information. Jasmine was getting some. Well, Jasmine, you weren't yet uh, available in our community CBOs. I think you were still at the county at that time, right? But we, we started to do the phone network I did. And I was realizing that I was learning about what was happening by reaching out to my partners. Then I realized, oh boy, we're really going to need to be on the same page here if, if we want to have a good way of responding and supporting our communities. And it came out of that desire of like, hey, let's get together and have a chit chat every week just to make sure we can connect the dots and um, get the information we need 
to guide our community and the respective families we work with. Um, and, and that's what started it all, just trying to piece the different flows of, of information and, and, and conversation happening with different leaders at the county, city, and state level into the same space so we could have a good understanding of the landscape we were dealing with. And yeah, out of that, Barbara, came a lot of work, right? And that's so important because in a local emergency disaster, it's usually the government that's responsible for that. But as we've learned through the decades of service and direct service, community-based organizations are really the foundation and the trusting organizations that people go to. Well, well what was really happening, Mariana, and I'm sure that this occurred at CAB, and it's true of so many other CBO uh, leaders, is that because the information wasn't necessarily organized in a way that was being made useful even for us as leaders of our organizations, we started to hear from our families and individuals that we support saying, How, what do I do? What can you tell me? Um, where do I go? Uh, I'm being asked not to go to work. Is there's going to be, how do I get assistance for my rent? I mean, it started to happen, right? Because we obviously have a relationship with the community and the community trusts us. So, you know, inevitably, you know, I think that the work that we have done collectively to have systems be more responsive to the needs of people came by way of the real life stories that um, we were hearing from uh, the community we we support and serve. Uh, so, Marielena, I don't know if you want to weigh in, but that, I, I'm sure that was true for Kath. Absolutely. I, I will say um, that what was immediately evident, as, as Erica so beautifully described, right, we were getting input from different levels of the community in our community-based organization role. Um, but what was evident immediately was that the information was not trickling to all the areas of the community. It was in Watsonville. I remember walking down to La Tienda over here around the corner, Santa Fe Market, and nobody was wearing masks. Yet in North County, everybody was wearing masks already. And so the communication flow, the response flow, the, the, the lack, the, there was a lack of systemic response that show that shine the light on the gaps of who gets information when and by whom right and those impacts hitting hardest to low income spanish speaking farm worker communities and right. so that was really um evident and so the other thing i think that was evident that we learned through the process and please jasmine and erica jump in it really um elevated the reality of what is the CBO, the community-based organization's role in, in being the trusted partner in helping bridge the gap between community people, community voices, grassroots, and systemic response. Mm -hmm. And so meanwhile, back at the camp, while these mujeres were leading these um, community efforts, I was still working at the county and started to really um, change my perspective on where it was important for me to be. When I saw that our county partners um, were able to ship and be allowed to work from home and not come into the office, when our community-based partners who we contract with and are supposed to be doing the same work 
are out there responding to people in crisis, responding to the need of the community and families in crisis. And I could not understand my whole career at Behavioral Health. It was instilled in me that we are the safety net clinic for our county. And when we needed a safety net, we were sent home and our partners were out there working. And so now that I'm back, so obviously two years later, shifted my role, quit the county, and now have this opportunity to lead Bajara Valley Prevention and Student Assistance um, along with these amazing women in our community. And um, it's given me a very different perspective on the work and the expectations both ways, right? And um, I think that while we are in a much better place currently, and that's highly due to some amazing women, amazing Latina Chicana women who are in positions of leadership now, not only in our CBOs, but even throughout the county and who are specifically taking note of the needs of Watsonville and centering those. And she's at these meetings every day with us or every week. Um, but literally speaking of every day, you know, our, our system was tested quickly again, right? We've continued to meet on a weekly at times, maybe every other week with that triage Friday group around the COVID response. And then what do you know? Uh, what, what was it on the 31st, the 1st of January, we got that call out from the county, uh, from community partners um, saying like, hey, this is going to be bad. What are we going to do? And actually, it wasn't the county. It was Tamara with, with the city and, um, and really led those efforts around the community-based response. And what that really looked like was the community-based organizations being out there volunteering time to go shovel sandbags, to go knock on doors to let people that they were going to have to be evacuated with the rising levels of our local waterways. And people were very, very much at risk of being flooded. And after that January 1st initial flood time, you know, it really kicked us into overdrive. And we started meeting every day again to deal with this specific response. And we, um, I think, stumbled a little bit at times. And we also remembered lessons that we learned. No, that's that's really great because I think from um, I think Maria Elena talked a little bit about the systematic approach, which is the established um, organizations like government finally realizing with new leadership. And part of the issue is we have to maintain that this new leadership will systematize these kinds of responses so that you will never not be called to uh, help with their assistance from government because of these changes. And do you think that that experience you've had for almost three years now with COVID, and now you were able to respond to the flood, um, do you feel that you are better at doing the work now because of all this experience? Well, let me just say a couple of things um, as I'm reflecting. And Marielena, as you told the story about that difference in response and, and our communities of color, monolingual Spanish-speaking communities didn't avail themselves of the information because the system wasn't doing a good enough job, frankly, in getting that information to our community. I, I, wanna, I want to highlight the outcome of that system failure that actually was the coalescing point even more so of our group. The fact that that information gap was existent in communities of color across the county and very evident in South County, 
led to a disproportionate death toll in South County. Well, not to be underestimated because that happened across the country. Across the country, you saw the same story, right? And so, but it speaks to, to, of course, the social determinants of health, which play a role, but also the the systemic um, gaps that we often see happen across our systems when you know you have communities that are more challenged because of these social determinants where the systems sometimes don't understand how to be more responsive or create new strategies to reach those communities that are already challenged with these determinants that are already barriers to begin with in living a uh, a life full of, of promise and, and thrive. So I, I think that for me personally, why this became such an important thing is that when I started to see the real impact of that systemic breakdown in literally lives lost, it just like what we don't have a choice. We got to do something and we got to bring our system partners along the ride because we want to build an understanding for them so that as they're systematizing the response for future emergencies, we don't repeat the story, right? That we learn from it, right? I mean, that's the whole point of like failures is that we learn from it and then we systematize it and then we ensure that um, next time we have to be deployed things are a little better for, for our communities, right? So I, I do want to just say that because there was a period of time where Watsonville saw the overrepresentation of uh, COVID positive cases and death toll. And, and we started to nip at that. Like our strategies that we developed was all about looking at that data point, those data points and seeing it move right? Reduction of death and reduction of COVID positive case counts. And, and, and we were getting weekly updates around that those two data points. And we were aligning our strategies and activities specifically to tackle those two um, indicators, right? So I just want to say that, that that's how we, for me, I saw our group learning how to use data and how to um, coalesce our, our actions to impart change and move the needle on two specific markers, right? And I think we've adopted this now understanding that uh, that we have to work this way as a result of our success of actually turning the curve in Santa Cruz County for our community, which is the success story, right? That we went from being the community with the highest percentage of death to the community with the lowest percentage of death. And we ended up, you know, really shifting the needle on, on the number of positive COVID case counts, right? That's excellent. Can I jump in and add uh, add a thread? Um, I think, you know, with COVID, with our local fires, which also impacted us and with the flood, one of the threads in terms of equitable response was also the Black Lives Matter movement. It was happening at the same time. And so we have to give credit to our Black colleagues, you know, who helped push that along with the anti 
immigrant rhetoric that was on the tail of the federal administration, right? So those movements, the Black Lives Matter movement and the deaths that the Black community was dealing with at the, at the hands of our law enforcement in many of our communities, along with the anti-immigrant rhetoric that existed, that caused fear in the communities that we serve, that in our low-income communities, those were movements happening at the same time. And so that equity thread was critically important in how we got systems to respond to our our concerns in South County. And it just seems to me that you are the system and you're part of the system. And that's, I hope, to be the ending part of the ending story of this whole work that you've been doing, including bringing in new leadership that really understands the importance of community-based organizations, the most trusted organizations in our communities. And uh, because, you know, all this work, and then you have to repeat this at the same level over and over again, that would be a loss to our communities, particularly as you have shown the importance and the outcomes of your work. I think that's the next, um, frankly, um, conversation we need to have because we haven't had a break, right? It's been COVID. We were hoping 2023 was going to be the year where we would reflect and engage in our system with our system partners to systematize some of the learning, right? Implement systems of the learning together. And then we get hit with floods, right? At the beginning of the year. And yet again, with this emergency, um, you saw we, we at the local level were well suited and, and well coordinated to be responsive. And we did that. But when it came to things like having the resources to be able to offset the expenses that we were all incurring as we were deploying our staff on that New Year's holiday when half, if not more, of the city and county personnel was not around, who picked up that tab, right? So, you know, we get caught in this situation as CBOs because of the in intimate relationships we have with the people we serve, right? That trusting relationship, we get caught in the situation where we know they need our help and we don't necessarily have the resources to support, but we do it anyway at a cost to our organization's ability to continue to execute our missions the best way we can because we're already under-resourced. And so I think this is the next conversation we need to have with our system partners, right? Let's have a conversation about COVID. How are CBOs integrated into the emergency response systems of the county and city structure? How is their funding marked off so that when we are deployed, because it won't be the last time this happens, I don't have to worry as a CEO, okay, how much is this going to cost me? And do I send my staff because I have a moral obligation to respond, but Am I going to dig myself deeper into a hole by doing that, right? These are the, the, the real life situations that as leaders of our respective organizations we're, we're grappling with in the middle of an emergency. So I think that we have ways to go to ensure that those policies and procedures, if you will, are embedded into county and city respond methodologies. Um, but that's, I'm going to encourage us to, to move into that conversation uh, with our system partners. Otherwise, we're going to repeat the same story. And then we'll talk about all the great work we did for free. Right. So let's talk about the, the repeat of the story. So during the Loma Prieta earthquake, we had the same issue at Salud para la Gente. 
And we spent, we were one of the major providers. And then when we tried to uh, get reimbursed from FEMA, FEMA basically told us we didn't have an emergency MOU with the city, which was, you know, understandable. Um, and they didn't want to reimburse us, but we finally got to the state to do that. So my understanding of the way it works now today is that your organizations could have emergency MOUs to be part of the emergency response, because I know the counties and the cities, particularly for this flood, when the president came, they're going to be reimbursed for the work. And also you all should be. Mm -hmm. So as we repeat history again, but I just want to drop that little um, nugget of what happened to Salud and the fact that we did eventually, years later, get reimbursed. And the fact of those MOUs and how important those are if they work still today. Well, you that just, is, go ahead. Go ahead, Maria. That is such an important nugget of information, Barbara that has now given us a tool to go back and talk to the cities and the counties because things are gonna to continue to happen. And I, and, and I will say that the beauty of, of, of what, what the response has been thus far is that philanthropy has, has, has stepped in to fill that role. And, you know, which is wonderful that we have local do donors that support our Community Foundation of Santa Cruz County. We have local donors that, that, that support each one of our organizations. That's beautiful. And we need that. But it's not enough, right? That, 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 that philanthropy dollars were passed through dollars to go directly to clients in need. And, 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 you know, there's still a systemic response that, you know, the community-based organizations are charity organizations and don't need to pay staff and shouldn't charge administrative fees. That's a myth. That is a myth. And we need to educate our partners to understand that the, the, the hour of work of my pivoted staff who is at, you know, the flood response is just as worthy that is just as important as a county staff person who's pivoted to do the same work that there needs to be an education around that because there's assumptions that nonprofits don't need administrative support that nonprofits shouldn't pay the same as other county jobs so there's there's a gap there and, a, and an opportunity for us to um to 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 move the needle right in 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 understanding and elevating the cbo role and, well, and there's, there's nothing like sending a bill to start a conversation oh god barbara i love you um so so love you you know uh i, I know what i'm doing after this call um right uh you know barbara to maria elena's point about philanthropy we are fortunate in santa cruz county to have a community foundation that gets it but I will tell you that in the middle of us responding to this, this emergency, which by the way, if it weren't for their support, there's no way I would have been able to sleep a little better at night because I did have this fiscal pressure, right? So I was trying to figure out how is this all gonna work. But at the same time, when I think about equity and at the same time, when I know that as a taxpayer, it is my expectation that city and county system and state system and federal systems of which I contribute are there to take care of me and my neighbors and my family, when I am struck with an emergency, right? I, I find it hard 
to understand why, especially as we know that FEMA reimbursement is going to kick in, which is basically a sum of all our collective taxes, right? Coming in in the form of a FEMA, a FEMA voucher, right? Um, why do we have to depend on community foundations who, by the way, we need them to be fundraising for those services and supports that are core to our mission and ensure that they stay focused in that lane and not have to then go and be the gap funder for emergency response when the systems that we all fund as taxpayers are supposed to do that. And they're supposed to have mechanisms to be nimble and quick in a case of an emergency because that's the nature of an emergency. Oh, and by the way, my understanding is that all public employees are supposed to be emergency personnel. What the yeah. hell does that mean? They are. Right? <laughs> so I just have so many questions um, that 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 have evolved as I kind of thought about COVID and this immediate emergency and trying to understand why is our system not responding in such a way that allows us to protect people in a timely and nimble manner? And so I think that's the work that lies ahead of us. Now, I don't want to bash our system partners because we've got champions that Jasmine has shared within our systems that are absolutely advocating and trying to help move the needle from within this, this what at times feel very bureaucratic processes, right? So I do want to honor them because they're they're there. But I think systemically, and it's not to blame any one person, there's a lot of room for improvement. Absolutely. You know, as you went through um, these services for the last three, four years that you've been at it, um, what were the, because many organizations, you grow out of need in your communities, uh, but then something like COVID or a flood hits. And what did you find that you didn't have um, in a service that you had to pick up? If I can jump in um, off the top of my head and, and how it has forever changed my agency. Um, it, we now have indigenous language speaking staff. We have staff and we have subcontractors and we have about a team of five that speak Mixteco, that speak Zapoteco and that speak Triqui that now are integrated into our agency that didn't exist before the, this crisis time and what we learned because of the crisis is our indigenous language speaking families um, had no access to any resources that existed i mean the resources are limited for undocumented indigenous language speaking families they're already limited, but they had no access to those very limited resources. And for us, that has changed who we are as an agency. That has changed. I mean, we have a board member who 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 is an indigenous language speaker. We have staff now. We have policies in place. We have looked at ourselves internally to see how do we serve this community in a better way. And we have a long way to go. Believe me, we have a long way to go. But ya empezamos con el primer paso. We started with the first step. That's mm -hmm. on, from my cab eyes. That's so unfortunately, um, I haven't yet had the opportunity here at the food bank to um, do our internal system shift because I, the, you know, I, I was slapped with the blood in my six month of tenure here. So I haven't necessarily had have had the opportunity to internalize and modify the way we respond to emergencies. Um, 
just yet, although obviously I got an opportunity to identify places where we do need to shift. But I do think of the work at PVPSA um, that where I was at prior to, to me coming here and PVPSA transform itself, just like Maria Elena uh, shared with CAB, you know, the whole idea of creating a pantry, right, within the organization, um, expanding our Promotora de Salud program, right, to make sure that we had trusted neighbors trained um, to be of support and responsive to the communities um, bearing the brunt of the pandemic, right? Um, learning how to, of course, pivot and keep our doors open. The only right. organization in the county of Santa Cruz that kept its doors open during COVID to service therapeutic needs for families that didn't have the technology to be able to zoom in for a session, right? Mm -hmm. um, those are huge, I think, pivotal points for any organization. And I know PVPSA is never going to be the same um, as it was pre-COVID because of that experience. Well, and it's really interesting for me to come in now um, in, in your footsteps, right? And I have so much respect for the ability of staff to be able to pivot. And I've come into a staff that is incredibly exhausted and doesn't know what job they're supposed to be doing right now. People are a little confused. And I think that the trauma and the impact of a flood where most of us, like our offices actually had to get evacuated. Um, it, you know, it was people definitely in our community and our children and families that went through a trauma response, you know, the unknown certainty of when we're going to be able to go back to school, back to work, the unknown certainty of, of the massive rains and what was being projected for our community was incredibly scary. And so that resulted in children even now not wanting to go back to school because they don't know what's gonna happen. And interestingly enough, I had a meeting yesterday with our school partners talking about our budget and our numbers, right? And there was questions around like, well, what the heck are your staff doing? Like these numbers don't look right. The caseloads don't look right. And Adriana, my, my uh, co-amazing head, um, she was just like, okay, well, during that time, we did 900 home visits knocking on the doors of the children and youth that were um, not showing up, that were not attending school, that we were trying to get them engaged. And like, they didn't have that piece of information. And they're like, oh, wow, that's, you know, and so I think that also part of the challenge is that a lot of our organizations have done some amazing work, and maybe that wasn't quite in line with what our contracts had us saying or with what, you know, our mandates were, but it was what we had to do in the moment. And so the challenge now is for us to continue to be able to provide our services while, you know, the CBOs have that of like, you know, supporting the staff that work with us and the community because they are really the same, right? And, and um trying to get on the right path again. And that doesn't necessarily mean it was the same path as pre before COVID either, right? Like what is our community now telling us what the needs are and how can we continue to pivot and adjust? But with specifically PVPSA, we are primarily a behavioral support site where we provide a continuum of services from case management to clinical services to therapy services. 
And um, how do we continue to support those staff and showing up and, and providing the training that they need, right? I think a lot of us probably hire very um, green staff oftentimes, right? Um, staff that have not had a ton of professional experience or development or that are like on their way. And so in a way, we're also very much that workforce development agencies of our, our own where we are recruiting and hiring staff. And in our case, staff that, you know, show an interest in providing services and potentially going on to college and graduate degrees to become the next therapist and, and coordinate, uh, clinicians in our community. Um, which PVPSA has been the primary funnel of that by our internship program and maybe putting over like 300 clinicians in the community. And so when we're engaging in our partnerships and collaborations with the county, with um, the school district, it's, um, I think me being that LCSW has a little bit of a different lens than Erika with her public health degree, right? And I think that both are incredibly needed for an organization like PVPSA and from the perspective of healing and the perspective of ongoing trauma, like not only our community members, but our staff and our leaders are continuing to reel from that. And we really need to continue to look for spaces where we can have moments of healing and where we can slow down at, for a minute to be together and actually talk and support each other because it's just work, work. The minute that we got that call from the city, January 1st for the flooding, we as leaders met every day for about two and a half, three weeks. And at that point, it also really became evident of who's not at the table, right? And really being mindful of how we uplift and support each other and not just take single ownership for work that we do and really try to continue to be this collaborative, but also call other people to, to the table that are stakeholders and hold them responsible for being in relationship with us as well. It's not just about putting a program down here. It's not just about showing up to a meeting, but it's showing up when it actually really counts and when our community really needs it. And I think those are the times where you look around and you see who your true partners are. And these women have been there every single day. That's right. I, I got to, Jasmine, I, I got to thank you for that comment. And I want to just really reinforce what you just shared. And there's a reality here about leaders and leaders of color and leaders, the, what leaders of color do or are expected to do and how we're expected to do it. And the um, untalked about impacts on wellness for leaders of color. And Jasmine, you have done an incredible job reminding us, checking in with us, being a sounding board to me. You know, girl, I call you, right? You know, Erica, I call you to, to, to help with that piece. I was granted, and I'm very fortunate, and I'm, I recognize my privilege. I was granted a 90-day a, a sabbatical last year because I was at the point of being stuck in fight and flight mode. I was sick. I was my my health numbers were impacted. My 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 well-being was impacted. My family was well well was impacted and I knew I needed a break and I was able to by the support of my board, by the support of a local foundation to to be able to take 90 days off and the support of my amazing team that didn't skip a beat. And so I want to say how do we normalize this part of the conversation? How do we normalize the impacts on leaders of color in dealing with crisis 
crisis response and being in fight and flight mode. We have to normalize it, mm-hmm. normalize it. The systems have not and don't accept it. And we need to keep pushing around it. Thank you, Jasmine, for your advocacy on this piece. Well, and we are still working at pushing forward um, some funding to provide some very specific uh, retreat dates for us as leaders. And um, yeah, there's a lot to do, but we can't do it alone, right? I couldn't imagine like being in this position without having Maria Elena, without having Erika, without having you, Barbara, to call and be like, Barbara, (laughs) you know, um, We all have to reach out to those supports and those mentors of ours to keep us going. And, you know, we need to protect our staff and leverage what those requests are, you know, and not just jump to every request that others have of us. And so I really did that as well as have a measured response, you know, and I said, I would be happy to consider sending my staff out there once you confirm from the county and who from the city has been sent out there and the other contractors as well. You know, why is it the smallest agency is the one that's needing to be relied on the most and expected to show on the most? And it's like, well, where, where's your staff? Let me know when they get deployed and then we'll deploy my staff. Well, I think these are great examples, but I really want to thank all of you because I think that, you know, it takes this kind of community response and having the opportunity and the honor to do podcasting, I'm able to reach out to other communities and organizations and I hear the same story. I hear the same story over and over again. And so I do think it's really important for the care to responders. I mean, that's a main part of, you know, when emergency responders respond, that you as a leader, you have to take care of the people responding. And there has to be a whole system around that. Um, Well, and Barbara, like these women, like that uh, (laughs) newspaper letter to the editor that was written, I know that these women wrote it right? These women wrote it to uplift the story and share and give acknowledgement to the community-based organizations that were there. Because when President Biden did come in, there was acknowledgement across the board for the city, county, state, law enforcement, fire, you know, FEMA, all of that. Not one word about the community-based organizations. And we had executive directors shoveling sand into sandbags for weeks, Like, come on, we are the first responders as well. Acknowledge that, respect us for that. And don't just rely on us when it's an emergency and then forget about us every other day. That's right. Can I I share the story that President Biden missed? Can I share that, Barbara and ladies? Absolutely. I'm going to tell you the story that the president missed. He was here, his entourage were very grateful that he's here. I am a supporter, I'm a Democrat, I am not ashamed to say that. And the story that he missed was who was making the sandbags. January 1st, the people who showed up, the community-based organizations and day workers of our community, the day workers, los jornaleros, unsheltered, community member, our homeless work crew showed up. Spanish speaking farm worker parents of the youth in our programs showed up. There was a group of about 40 of these volunteers who showed up without any questions day after day after day. And in four days, Barbara and ladies, they made 40,000 sandbags. Yo aguante una hora. I was able to do a sandbag, make sandbags for one hour. Hard, 
physical labor in pouring rain. Unsheltered community members, jornaleros, day workers, and Spanish-speaking parent volunteers are who made the sandbags for the Watsonville community. And that's the story our president missed. That's the one. Well, we haven't missed it at Healthcare Untold. And uh, I just want to acknowledge all of you um, and more to come. Barbara, and, I do want to say yes, before we wrap up really yes. quickly that um, for your list, your listeners are the listeners that will be listening to this beautiful podcast. We are moving to um, coalesce our collaborative um, to really create a structure by which we continue to do not just emergency response work, but collective work in our community. And that's gonna be the next chapter of our story where we hope we will continue to uh, engage our system partners in a conversation around system change for the sake of equity and justice and dignity for all. And we will continue to work alongside each other to take care of the multifaceted needs of our community in a structured way. And that's going to be the next story of our, our collective efforts. And we want to come back and tell you all about it as we continue to uh, uh, march our path along that journey. Well, I am so excited and I want to know more about that for the future. And so we want to thank on, on behalf of Healthcare and Toad. Jasmine, why don't you do the ending and uh, say goodbye to everybody. We're so grateful to have your time here uh, uplifting these amazing chingona leaders in our community. And, um, you know, we will definitely come back and continue to tell these stories. You all know that it's very close to my heart, the story of Watsonville, South County, Santa Cruz County. And um, just let's just leave it with a big heart for our community, big love for our community, and always uh, keeping us centered around our mari mariposa, Laura Segura. So thank you, Jasmine, our co-host at Healthcare Untold. We want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast today. Thank you so much. Bye, ladies. Love you all. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold.